Welcome to Writers Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the artistic director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to season three of the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Our host today is Susan Johnson. Susan is passionate about the transformative power of stories and loves to explore new ideas and places through her award-winning weekly radio program, The Friday Special Blend on CKCU. She'll be speaking with Alison McLeod. Alison grew up in Montreal and Halifax and has lived in England since 1987. She's the author of two collections of stories and three previous novels, including Unexploded, which was nominated for the Booker Prize. Her latest, Tenderness, is an ambitious historical novel about sensuality, censorship, and the novel that set off the sexual revolution. Elizabeth Gilbert raves, what a triumph of skill and imagination is this powerful, moving, brilliant novel. I've never read anything quite like Tenderness, and I doubt I ever will again. Through the story of Lawrence's writing of Lady Chatterley's Lover, the historic obscenity trial that sought to suppress it in the United Kingdom, and the men and women who fought for its worldwide publication, tenderness captures the epic sweep of the 20th century, from war and censorship to sensuality and freedom. We'll begin with a short taste of the prose and then dive into the conversation between Alison McLeod and our host, Susan Johnson. Here we are about halfway through tenderness and we're about to meet Nick and Dina, two Cambridge University students. He's studying history, she's studying English, and she's intrigued by by the scandal that's brewing up around Lady Chatterley's lover in 1960. It's probably all I need to say. Um, He's lured her upstairs and uh, has instructed her to take a seat. She did as instructed. For nearly half an hour, he foraged in his spectacles by the half-light of the moon until, aha, he declared. He joined her at the table and slowly slid a book across to her. She gasped. 1928, he said, signed. Lady Chatterley, the original, between terracotta covers that were still bright. She traced the phoenix Phoenix insignia engraved on the front. He tried not to look as pleased with himself as he was. Lawrence drew that phoenix. She looked up, really, open it. Oh, what a beautiful signature. One of just a thousand copies produced, privately published in Italy to bypass the censors. Not that that worked out especially well. I assembled and reported the full provenance. In the moonlit room, her eyes shone. Something gusted within her and she felt suddenly awake in spite of her long day. I've only read the censored version at school. That's about to change for starters. You mean I can actually read it? He scratched his head, actually. Her mind word, word. I could read it in the broom cupboard while you work when it's convenient for you up here. Suddenly, the broom cupboard was no longer the sordid prospect it had been minutes before. In all honesty, I I don't think it's a good idea. 
The wind clattered at the window. It seemed to her a little mean of him to dangle the book, then withdraw it. At the table, her back stiffened. She returned the book. Thank you all the same. He nodded, somber. I don't think it's a good idea because it's rather dusty in that cupboard. He took a big bite of toast. I expect your room is a more suitable location. She gasped again, really? Who will ever know? I'll guard it with my life. Well, if you could avoid doodling in the margins, that will do. I can't tell you how much my time is spent erasing. He winked, specialist work up here. I don't know how to thank you. His eyes flashed with cartoon wickedness. I suspect you do. She ignored him and opened the book to a random page and started to read aloud, suddenly strangely unselfconscious in front of a boy, no, a man who stared and wouldn't look away. And Dina begins to read. And are you sorry, she said, it's Lady Chatterley. In a way, Mellors replied, looking up at the sky, I thought I'd done with it all, now I've begun again. Begun what? Life, he replied. Life, she re-echoed with a queer thrill. Dina leaned across the crate and kissed Nick's cheek. He half rose from the floor and kissed her slowly. Over tea later, he explained the provenance of, no, he corrected himself, the story of her copy of Chatterley, pieced together from multiple index cards. He'd had to do some extra digging, he said, because as a classic student, he'd been tasked by his tutor to research the, the work of the late Cambridge classicist, Sir Stephen Gasly. Sir Stephen had led him unexpectedly to Lawrence. Lawrence, in turn, had led him to the 1928 Chatterley in the ARC collection of Cambridge Library. All right, so here we are um, in a, a little taste of the climactic scene of tenderness, which is the 1960 trial of Penguin Books for obscenity at the Old Bailey in London. And uh, the Old Bailey, some of you may know, is actually, it's an old Edwardian space. It's actually quite cramped. And so the public gallery looked like a series of shelves. And here, as narrator, I sort of refer to the people in the gallery um, quite fondly, I have to say, as the teacups up on the shelves of the gallery. So here we go, into the trial. The teacups smile and a few of the jurors do as well. When you read the book, you will see certain things which the author was aiming at. Far from putting promiscuity on a pedestal, D.H. Lawrence's whole private and writing life was strongly in favor of marriage. You will find that the early promiscuous affairs described in this novel are, all of them, highly unsatisfactory. But Constance does fall in love and the book ends with her and Mellors being about to marry. Mr. Griffith Jones has suggested that this is a book which contains 13 descriptions of physical intercourse with little but padding in between. With respect to my esteemed friend, that is a curious assertion. 
D.H. Lawrence, in the manner of all great writers, was preoccupied with the tragedy of the Great War. He did not believe that the ills of society that came after could be cured by political action. He believed rather that the remedy for those ills lay in the restoration of right relations between human beings, specifically on unions founded on love bodily as well as spiritual. Indeed, the book, which is the subject of this trial, was at one time to be entitled Tenderness by its author. Does that suggest a pornographer at work? Does it sound to you like a title for an obscene novel? I would suggest that you will find exactly the opposite when you read it. Here is a book about England of the 20s, an England that is sick, an England that is broken. I put it to you that Lawrence wrote the story of Lady Chatterley not to titillate and certainly not to deprave or corrupt. On the contrary, he created the character of Lady Chatterley as a symbol of hope, and her story is, above all, one of regeneration. The jury are soon to decide for themselves, will they be revolted or will they be rejuvenated? Mr. Gardner suggests to the judge that the usual practice is for the jury to take the book home. The judge disagrees. Mr. Gardner points out that the jury rooms are jolly uncomfortable and that the jurors would be required to read cheek by jowl in one another's presence. Mr. Griffith Jones argues that the jury room is the proper way forward. Mr. Gardner counters, when you read anywhere, what you read is and should be private to the author and you. It occurs to the judge that he has never been in the jury room. He consults the clerk of the court. The clerk does not believe that the wooden chairs are as bad, sorry, as, are as hard as Mr. Gardner suggests. And so it is decided. The jurors will report to the jury room the following day to begin their reading assignment without the, quote, distractions of home and the opinions of spouses. The case, Mr. Justice Byrne announces, will resume in one week. Then Lady Byrne stands and confers upon her husband the sacred book bag, the purple fig leaf to protect his dignity, and the principal players depart the court. In the great hall outside, there is relief among the supporters of Sir Allen. They gather around him a rallying force. Well, the thing is underway at last, best to get all the unpleasantness over and done with. The Americans have finally come through in New York with Grove Press, and now it's Penguin's turn. The jurors, they all agree, look like reasonable, sound individuals, with the exception perhaps of the, un the unctuous foreman. Mr. Gardner, they say, is exemplary. He struck precisely the right notes in his opening address. Michael Rubenstein's dicky ear misses several of these remarks and the general hubbub of the Great Hall's echoing chamber. His good ear, however, is perfectly placed to hear another more discreet exchange just to his side, to eavesdrop on a conversation between Sir Toby Matthew, director of public prosecutions, and one of his office juniors who begins 
if I if I may, sir, it, it went well today, in, in my opinion. Mr. Griffith Jones gave a commanding performance. What is your view, sir, of our chances? Sir Toby makes a vague gesture of his hand, as if to indicate boredom, impatience, or simply a regret that he hasn't passed the last few hours in his club per perusing the morning papers. I haven't formed of you, Mr. Blewett. Yes, of course, says Blewett. One mustn't jump the gun, apology, sir. Sir Toby looks up to the dome of the great hall and tries unsuccessfully to stifle a yawn. I must say, Blewett, between you and me, I don't actually mind whether we fail or succeed. I'm, I'm very curious about the early roots of this book and how you decided to embark on such a magical process. Oh, uh, thank you for that question. Um, gosh, it, it, it's been six years in the making. Uh, so it's been a, a long process, uh, a good deal of that, perhaps the first four years, solid research, you know, alongside uh, a teaching job and um, an, a book of short stories coming out. So it, it's been a busy period, but this was uh, my perhaps most engrossing work of life today. It's book six. And um, it, it, yes, it's my, it's, well, perhaps every latest book is one's proudest book, but this, because of the, um, just the process in, uh, involved, I, I had long loved Lady Chatterley as a novel. I read it when I was a 17 year old, I think, um, like most teens at that age who had literary, um, interests and was perhaps trying to figure out what is involved in this whole business of being adult and female and will this make sense or will I think it's nonsense? I didn't you know, quite know, but I found myself perhaps less, uh, finding less instruction about sexuality and you know, a future life of that kind, um, just being an, a grown-up. Um, but I was so moved. I remember that. I think it's one of the very first books um, in my teenage reading experience that left me deeply moved. And that's what I take away, I think, from that age. And perhaps I think it was then that sense of tenderness that does infuse the whole of the novel. Um, there's some wonky bits some flawed bits, some um, bits that I think Lawrence Living Now would certainly rewrite. But that, that sense of a big life to this book um, moved me and, and gripped me. Um, that still wasn't enough to write a novel about. Um, I never planned to. I knew about the 1960 trial, had long been, you know, interested in it, just knowing about it, but I knew very little about it. I realized most people, even academics actually, um, and having worked as an academic for a long time, I think many people assume that that was, you know, it was 1960, of course it was going to be vindicated. It was the beginning of lib a kind of liberal sweep of the 20th century. Of course, it was going to get through. I had no idea until I began digging through the archives of the defense papers, the prosecution papers, just how, uh, how up against it, how much against the odds 
that vindication was um, and and the huge risks taken so that fascinated me that that that's something I came to but the thing to go to your question that absolutely told me I have a novel here that I will I can't I can't not write is when I discovered um, through ways to to dull to kind of take you through but when I discovered that the FBI, and the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, in 1959-1960, was out to get this book, to keep it banned, was tracking the fate of Lady Chatterley in the middle of the Cold War. And I thought, I saw telegrams from Hoover about it. I then saw that Hoover was going so far as to aid the prosecution in London to bring down the book. So not only doing his own thing to bring down the book in the States, but also aiding the prosecution case, offering them assistance. And I thought, what on earth could the FBI, could the whole political landscape, what on earth could that of the 20th century have to do with a novel, have to, with a single novel? What on earth could that have to do with a man imagining and you know, having things to say in 1928, but an act of the imagination above all. What on earth is all of that? And I had to start digging. That's where the book began. What I really appreciated as I was reading was how you interspersed pieces of Lawrence's text um, and the text with what was actually going on at various points that he was writing, almost like sitting inside an artist's paintbrush, understanding how pieces. Uh, I'm so I'm so glad, Susan. Thank you for saying that because one thing, I, you know, once I knew that that was my my project and my ambition and this big thing I was going after. Then the next thing I wanted to do was to bring to life the life of the imagination, the life of, of a creative process, to dramatize almost brushstroke by brushstroke the drama involved in committing that story to the page, where it came from for D.H. Lawrence, what, what he was up against. He was dying of tuberculosis. As he wrote it, he poured the last of his life into it. It's his last novel. He would die two years later, and he was literally outrunning his prognosis day by day to get that book made, to get that book written. So I wanted to give the reader, my reader, a sense of the inside story, the intimate story of the writing of Lady Chatterley, which again was full of discoveries for me, even in my kind of English literature academic life. Again, a, a an act of detective work and of uncovering of discovery. And I wanted so much to share that with the reader. Because for me, I just, I, you know, I thought, is it just me or, or is this fascinating that you know, the, to be up against the odds, what it took to, to bring that book to true life? Think about kind of being in the space and spending a, a couple of evenings with a section of the book. Um, that is situated in a converted cow shed and finding myself needing to go and make some hot chocolate and put something nice in it and just be with it and enjoy it. Oh, I'm so glad. And and for me, um, it, it just, 
I mean, I was writing a lot of this book through lockdown and and previous, perhaps the nine months a year previous to lockdowns. My lockdown um, was at least a double lockdown. And and yet um, the book itself became, because Lawrence's story, I'm not sure what element of it, I've never quite had it to this degree before, where it became a real presence with me. And and um, I didn't feel the, the solitude or uh, I certainly didn't feel kind of lonely. It felt a kind of presence as, uh, I mean, it's a bit mad to say, but uh, books are like that. I think they give back um, in ways that are hard to articulate. Um, and certainly one of, you mentioned the cow shed and one of the locations in tenderness uh, in when we go back to Lawrence in 1915, uh, when he was really in a kind of breakdown and suffering from depression because of the, de- of the declaration of war in 1914. He didn't disapprove of war in itself. He believed in it as a principle of defense, potentially, but he thought that war was on an industrial scale and he went through an incredibly difficult time. And it was, it was those beginnings uh, of various other things, uh, his, his strong feeling about the First World War uh, and a circle of people he came into contact with in that year who would prove definitive for his Lady Chatterley novel uh, 10 years later, approximately a decade later. But I was delighted to through oh serendipity to have a, um, a pair of artist friends who happened to say oh a friend of ours has mentioned that his family has a cottage that used to be a cow shed where Lawrence once lived and it's still pretty well untouched and his book the bookshelf he built is still there would you like to go see it and I thought, would I my gosh and then uh, that was a revelation and that whole um, element, that strand of my story in tenderness, which goes back to Sussex and to Lawrence and his wife, Frida, in that cow shed, um, it began with that visit. Wow. I'm, I'm curious, Alison, why do you think Lady Chatterley was so important to Lawrence, both uh, the character and in the book itself? Uh, I think in it, Lawrence, I'm sure, although he was in denial about the state of his health, he was always in denial about how bad it was. And I think that's how he survived and how he kept going, by being in denial. Um, And yet, nevertheless, he was hemorrhaging blood quite badly from the tuberculosis in that period when he was writing Chatterley. And so he knew, he knew that, you know, death wasn't far off. He had, as it turns out, less than two years. So I think into Lady Chatterley, the novel, he poured everything that was meaningful to him in life, everything his 44 years of life in terms of insight, uh, psychology, politics, uh, and something else, something elemental about the human spirit. I think he absolutely poured that line by line into Lady Chatterley and part of the great tension of that novel and part of the great life and beauty of that novel probably comes from the fact that Lawrence was dying and probably loved life as never before. He was always a great affirmer of life 
life. But I think those moments when when life is receding, as we will all know from people in our own lives, are those moments when life and meaning sometimes shines most brilliantly. And that brilliance he poured into Lady Chatterley. Um, what I find or I discovered, I'm going back and rereading Susan, is something I completely missed with it when I was younger, is that it's also, as well as being this, um, well, perhaps I should say that the other thing first, it's, it's a profound anti-war novel in a way I never knew when I was 17. So I believe Chatterley begins with, ours is essentially a tragic age, so we refuse to take it tragically. The cataclysm has happened. We are among the ruins and the way into the future is not clear. And I remember, I do remember reading those lines as a 17 year old growing up in Nova Scotia and thinking, huh? <laughs> thinking, um, well, oh, I don't get that bit, so I'm just going to carry on in the way you do when you don't get lots of things when you're reading stills. Of course, sometimes we all don't get things. So I just passed that by. I, thought, I want to get to the love story now or I want to get to the drama. So, But now I realise the whole novel is infused with a sense of a man from a generation that was traumatised by the, the millions of deaths um, and, the, and the absolute... Uh, catastrophe of that war for his country. So that sense of gravitas informs the novel, but that's not where he stops. Lawrence isn't writing a doom and gloom novel. He's about life, he's dying, and he's more about life than ever. So he, he wants to create this love story, which is not only a love story between two people, it's a love story at the elemental level, even at the mythic level with the union between the, the true union of two spirits and two bodies between Constance Chatterley and the, her husband's servant, the gamekeeper, Oliver Mellors, that extramarital affair, although illicit, is in Lawrence's terms, this, this fertile union of true spirits and Lawrence believed in his own philosophy and psychology that the healing of society had to begin with true relations between human beings true tenderness not not sentimentality not naivete but true honest tenderness that confronted the realities of what it was to be human our dark sides our unpleasant sides, our shames, our vulnerabilities, and our beauties, all of that. Through that, we, we reach this point of a kind of tender honesty. And Lawrence wanted to dramatize that in the love story of Connie and Mellors. And I would go so far as to suggest that I think Connie Chatterley functions as a kind of um, female fertility goddess. Um, in later, he's created a myth for his country, but it's also a myth that extends, as we know from its readership, far beyond England to the world. And it's a myth of healing, a myth of regeneration. And it comes from both love, tenderness, and both those characters are so intimately connected to woodland, to the natural world. And Lawrence, God, he'd be brilliant today with our climate crisis, our climate emergency. And Lawrence, was so on it before 
before almost any other writer was. And his own woodlands of childhood had been stripped down for the First World War. They'd been the wood that he loved had been felled for coffins, crosses, duckboards, and trench struts for the war. And he felt that loss. He grieved keenly, desperately. So elemental. Um... I have two questions for you, Allison, and uh, there's reasons to go in each direction first. Uh, one around the the art of bridging fact and fiction and how you would talk about your work um, to what extent as a novel. But then I'm also curious about your research adventures because I love the book, but I also loved reading your sources and what an amazing, what an amazing mix. Um, maybe, oh. yeah. Yeah. Oh, Susan, thank you. Um, gosh. Okay. So first one was the blending of fact and fiction. And um, that, yes, it's such a, you know, a natural thing to, to pick up on because uh, that's the, to some extent, the great dare, the great risk of, of this novel. Um, as I was saying, I, I, I sort of lived in archives and I, uh, just, I've spent tens of thousands of hours with documents uh, of all kinds, letters, diaries, photographs, on and on and on, prosecution papers, etc. So all of that, while I find it, I don't find it drudgery. I don't find it, it's not even earnest work for me. I find it gripping and fascinating. It is my detective search. And I love the detail of reality. I'm from a family of journalists. Um, I grew up with a father who started as a journalist. I'm intrigued. I love listening to the news. Um, I mean, I'm a real news hound. Um, and for me, or my family, I think there's never been a great distinction between um, news stories and history. So people say, oh, do you like to write modern or do you like to write history? And I think, well, between news and history, it's all history is just yesterday's news. It's the same impulse. So it's really important to me, in other words. But at the same time, even bigger, the reason I, I haven't joined my family tradition and become a journalist as much as I respect it and love it is because for me personally, um, there's something more, there's something more that I want to do. Not everyone will agree and not everyone needs to do it. But I'm intrigued by what the imagination can deliver to the page, how um, the imagination, sometimes we might, as novelists, as painters, as whatever, uh, we might depart, we might, we might really, really work from, with the facts, as I do obsessively in this novel, but there are times when you depart from the facts. Some, so practical reasons, um, a, a biographer would also say, you have to select. You can't shoehorn in absolutely everything. And by in that act of selection, you're, you're um, creating an angle. Uh, so that's one lens you're putting on it. You're not showing everything because you, it's impossible. It's impossible for any writer. So you select and you distill. Um, but I love the gems that I couldn't make up. I love the gem. I love discovering that D.H. Lawrence in escaping, which is essentially what he did, the asylum where he was supposed to spend his final week. Um, I love discovering the, the fact that he he steals from, you know, and he was so such a Puritan. So this is not like him at all. He's so full of integrity, but he steals from the library there um, a copy of the life of Columbus. 
He just wants to take it. And so his last days, he's reading the life of Columbus. I love discovering that he was giving somebody um, two days, a day before he died, quite a horrible review. The, the, um, paint, the sculptor Eric Gill, who had written the book, Lawrence really slayed, it's really quite, and poor old Eric Gill, later, knowing that Lawrence had written that review, actually was kind, very kindly said, oh gosh, he wrote it while he was dying and he hated my book. I hope I didn't spoil his final hours. So that, that, those kinds of gems you couldn't make up. And, and I, loved, I loved the gifts they offered as I wrote. But there are also, again, so let's stick with that death scene. There's, a, let's say, a character called Maria Huxley, who is um, the wife of Aldous Huxley. Technically, she was in and out of, um, of his death room at the time, but she's not going to appear anywhere else. So she has to go because Maria isn't going to appear. Those are the kinds of decisions. The big decision I made in this way, the one that um, is most notable for my novel is that Jackie Kennedy comes into the novel in 19, well, we, we meet her in 1959. We meet her uh, as, she, as she leaves a hotel in New York uh, May 14th, 1959, it's the date of the hearing of Grove Press at the General Post Office in New York, and the government and the post office are behind the scenes trying to keep Lady Chatterley banned. Uh, and Grove Press was in trouble with the law for shipping their new edition in 1959, their uncut original version through the post. So it's a big brouhaha. It's not, a, it's not a trial by jury, so it never got the attention that the London trial got. But it did happen. I, I didn't even know this. It happened in 1959, and there, were, there was a pu public was allowed. Nobody knows who was in that public gallery. And fiction is made up of what ifs. It, that's the great gift that fiction allows us to imagine other possible truths and realities. What if, I asked myself, Jackie Kennedy had walked into that room? Because I remember I was saying that um, Hoover and the FBI, that's documented. They were after Lady Chatham. They wanted that book shut down. That's documented. And then once I knew that, I, you want to present different viewpoints, of course, in a novel. So I asked myself, who else? In 1959, who else might have been around and um, gripped in a, in a similar but different way? Hoover's gripped. Who else might have been gripped? Who might have been the flip side of that coin? And it, it just came into my head, Jackie Kennedy, because then this is where we go back to, to facts. Jackie Kennedy was, in her early years, a reporter, a very ambitious young reporter um, with the Washington Herald Tribune uh, at an age when most young women weren't getting reporter posts. Um, she had longed secretly to write fiction all of her life and had once hoped to publish in The New Yorker. She actually won a short story contest with Vogue magazine and was supposed to go to Paris. She loved D.H. Lawrence's work. She loved the work of Chekhov, uh, uh, Dostoevsky, lots of writers. So she was very literary. Um, I had this hunch. I thought that's good. And actually, I'm going to go with that, but I'm going to dig around a bit more. So 
because fiction allows us, this is the great gift of fiction, we have to be able to make leaps because that leap I knew would allow me to put a spotlight, even though that's an invention, it would allow me to show the wider truth. And the wider truth what was, is what was going on behind the scenes with the FBI uh, monitoring covertly American political leaders' families and the leaders themselves. So senators and congressmen, um, there are at least 400 files now available through the FBI of the secret monitoring of senators and congressmen's families. So uh, I have Jackie Kennedy walk into that trial. She's still an unknown member. She's only just married. She's recently married. Kennedy has not yet ascended to the White House. But with that one invention, it allowed me to show a whole world of truth that I wanted to expose. And I love how you put her in a raincoat so that we could feel how hot it was. Because if she was dressed in high design clothing, she would have been much more conspicuous than, exactly. than what it's like to sit through a long proceeding in something so warm. And it, it felt so very visceral. So Fantastic. thank you for taking us right there. Thank you, Susan. I'm, I'm I'm glad that detail worked for you. And I just tried to I just tried to think logically. She um I had her going. She was she had in in my version of it. I mean I don't actually know where she was. We could probably go back. I could I could have gone, but actually I chose not to. Um and found um, located her day diary for May 14th, 1959. And perhaps perhaps have located where she was. But I thought, no, actually, this is one thing I am going to allow myself to do because it's going to let me show much more of the of what was actually going on um, and how that book was being hounded. Um, so um, I thought, yeah, then I, I went into, I suppose, female mode and thinking, right, she's supposed to, in my book, be going to the, the opening of the Lincoln Center, which is which it, truth in, in all um, reality was being opened that day by President Eisenhower. So that was accurate. She was a great fan of the arts. I thought it's not unlikely that she would have been invited to that. That could well have been the case. And she's a New Yorker as well. So why wouldn't she want to be there? Why wouldn't she want to be at both places? So she's um, she will turn up late for the Lincoln Center event, but only after doing a kind of costume change um, and going in. And um, I forget the department store I have her go into. Bergman, I, um, yeah, um, it's because I'm not a New Yorker. I can't think of it offhand. But she goes into a major department store. Um, apologies to them for getting their name wrong. And, uh, and she arranges um, anonymous clothing for herself, which includes that raincoat. And yes, um, I just thought, God, you know, it's a close, close kind of quarters. I just wanted the uncomfort, discomfort of that to come through. I'm curious. I mean, this was a six-year-long process for you, Allison. And you've talked about some of the decisions you took to situate characters at different points and in different ways. But when you think about turning points uh, from conception to publication, um, would you be willing to share some of them with us? Um, yeah, I, I will try. And please feel free to ask me any uh, um, little questions about it to, to sort of jog um, <laughs> there are aspects of it which are just a total blur where it seemed to just be coming out of me. Um, so I've never quite, I mean, I, I, as I say, it's, well, it's novel, let's talk about in terms of novels, it's book six, but novel four. Um, I am quite an instinctive writer uh, in that I don't conceptualize a lot before, I don't prepare index cards and plot 
uh, heavily in advance. I have about four or five um, pivotal points. I think, gosh, I would love to be able to get to that next point. I wonder if I'll be able to. And gosh, that would be a wonderful next point if I could get to, they're almost like keystones in architecture. And the novel is a huge cathedral, any novel is really quite a huge piece of architecture that you carry with you internally. It's all, you, you straighten up and feel so much lighter when you deliver a novel because it's been this massive secret invisible architecture for so long within you. So uh, I carry with me pivotal points. Um, I spent the four years immersed, immersed, immersed with, with my floor still covered in dozens and dozens of books as I, you know, so I'm doing articles of various kinds. Of so I'm still um, swimming in the research for this novel. Uh, and it's a joy and it's, um, it messes up your life. It means you can't have people around for dinner parties. You look just weird a lot of the time, all of that. Um, and that's what it takes. But I then began writing in November, 2018. I had actually given up my um, teacher, teaching job, my lecturing job at university here. I, uh, my hours were going up continually, continually, and I made the decision. Uh, it was it suddenly came to a stark choice. Either I carry on teaching um, or um, if I do, I'll never write this book. It will become impossible to deliver on my contract. And there was no contest. There was, I, I love teaching. I, I love students. But um, it had always been the secondary thing to my writing. So the, the choice was clear. It wasn't risk-free. It, it, it was a gamble. It definitely was, and it was scary in some ways. Um, but instinctively, everything about me knew that's what I had to do. Uh, so I think I formally stepped down from my role. I'm still there in a visiting honorary capacity, but I stepped down from my role as uh, the chair of the department, or chair of that section of the department, and, um, and began writing terrified really I was behind on my you know my publisher thought it was already being written it wasn't I was terrified I because I just could not get to it the research was huge and um and I I wish I could we're, we're I'll describe it because we're on audio but I have a a big fat large black notebook where I just started scribbling, brainstorming, everything that seemed important to me that I loved and was intrigued by and the confusions I had around. And part of the confusion was structure. How do I do this? Um, you know, it would have been, you know, some people say, oh gosh, you could have made your life easy and just have written the story of the trial, or you could have made yourself life easy and just have written about Lawrence in Sussex on that cow shed in World War One. That would have been a whole novel. But I thought, I'm it's not that that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in writing a biography of Lawrence. I'm not even interested in writing a whole novel of the life of Lawrence. I'm not interested even as, as, as important as it is, and just Lady Chatterley for its own sake. I'm interested in all those elements together and in the story of the human imagination in the 20th century and point, you know, with suggestions for ours. So, I knew it had to be an orchestra, a composition of woven storylines, of all of these storylines woven almost. For me, it felt like an orchestra of voices that I was composing. I mean, that might sound grand or grandiose, um, 
but it felt like that kind of composition where I had to weave rather than just do this section, next section, next section, next section. Instead, it had to be um, melodic and harmonious and dissonant. It had to be all of those things at different times. I really felt it musically, I think would be the metaphor that moved through me. And the weird thing is, and thank God, I mean, it almost felt like um, the writing gods behind me. Um, I never do this. I always show a finished a manuscript that I that first draft to friends before I send it to my editors. But I show it to writing friends who I've had for 20, 25 years. They're always the first readers. And this time, because of the pandemic, because I was so already overdue for my publisher's idea of the deadline, I thought there isn't time, there isn't time. And they were really keen to have it. So I was terrified and I sent the book off without anyone having read a word. I thought, oh my God. Um, and it was like, a, a, it, I, I wept. I mean, I did, tears came to me when I, when um, the, I, I just, I just, yeah, tears. Um, when the feedback came back and they, you know, it was, it was, it, it was glorious. I, 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 you know, I was just so moved and grateful. And, um, and as it happened, not, I don't think even a chapter was changed. Um, certainly I went through and did very fine level polishing over, I mean, I've read that book hundreds of times and every line has been looked at hundreds of times, but the actual structure is for me, that remains personally, for me as a writer, the marvel, the miracle uh, or something, um, the way that sometimes when you're up against it and you take great risks with things, it's as if, uh, I'm being sentimental here, but as if the universe gets in behind you and something, or your brain is just working at such lightning speed because of the pressures um, and because of your commitment to the project and your love of it. It's part of the love that creates that kind of creative process. I actually don't have any more questions for you, but before I thank you, I want to check in on if there's anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make good and sure we cover. Oh, that's so generous. I would just say, um, because I'm speaking to the Ottawa Writers' Festival, um, I would just say that, um, well, well this, this, this is a very minor, this isn't what I was going to say, but it popped into my head. I was so happy to put in a line from my Cape Breton, my Cape Breton grandfather. <laughs> so there are those touches. But, but more importantly than that, um, um, there's a little known thing that I've forgotten. And on rereading Lady Chatterley, I was so happy to rediscover um, and that is that there's a, uh, an unexpected Canadian element that almost everyone has forgotten to Lady Chatterley. And that has something to do. I don't want to um, say too much here because it um, relates to the ending of tenderness um, uh, after we come through the trial. But I was delighted to, um, to be able to pick up on something that Lawrence imagined for the characters of Lady Chatterley and Oliver Mellis that has to do with Canada. And I, was, I just took great pleasure in being able to write that in to the end of tenderness um, because it's so forgotten and overlooked. And I loved bringing Lawrence's uh, dream for Constance and Mellis uh, back to life a little bit, taking it, taking it forward a little bit. I'll say, I hope that's not too much said. 
That's so beautiful. Oh my goodness. Allison McLeod, thank you so very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Susan, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. It's such a generous interview. Thank you so much. And thank you to your listeners. That was CKCU's Susan Johnson in conversation with Alison McLeod about her acclaimed novel, Tenderness. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.